0: The DC Extended Universe is in its death throes. Is it the Flash or the Flush? Let's find out in this week's Nerd Byword Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 155. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are reviewing the uh, latest offering of the DC Extended Universe, The Flash. Um, But before we jump into that particularly harrowing review, it's time for some... All Chris, uh, back to the AI, I see.
1: So a lot of folks have been looking forward to the start of uh, Disney Plus series uh, Secret Invasion based on the interesting storylines and retcons that took place in Captain Marvel, uh, which repositioned the Skrulls as refugees. And a lot of people had written off, you know, since they were heroic or sympathetic characters that Marvel could never do a secret invasion. Well, here we are. Um, However, when this series premiered, a lot of people are up in arms, um, as they are wont to do on social media, because the title sequence features artificial intelligence. Um, It's a real hot button issue, not only uh, in the art community, but also... Uh, amongst the WGA writer's strike with the fear that AI is going to replace um, real people's jobs. Um, Ali Salim, who is one of the producer, executive producer and director on the show, uh, says that the intro sequence was designed by Method Studios using AI, something that he feels plays with the very themes of the show. Um and said, quote, when we reached out to the AI vendors, that was part of it. It just came right out of the shape-shifting scroll world identity, you know? Who did this? Who is this? End quote. Um, and so it's a really kind of interesting debate, um, if not public outcry on social media at the very least, that AI is being used in um, so blatantly in a large project like a Disney Plus MCU show, um, but they they made it clear that no artist's you know work was was taken and no one lost their work over this. Um, and I'm kind of two minds of it, honestly. <clears throat> number one, it's a title sequence that most people skip. Uh, number two, it does play with the themes of the show: not to trust what you see. Um, but at the same time, I am in full support of artists' rights, workers' rights, um, and this is kind of an underlying, almost like an an uh, appetizer course of, like, the VFX, the ugly truth coming out, even something that we unanimously love, like Across the Spider-Verse, uh, Vulture came out with an article. So it's a real hot-button issue, Dave.
0: I'm um you know obviously uh have been a writer myself uh for a long time, and so i um view a i with great skepticism you know as well I like my uh my art to be actually created by human beings and not by computers i'll I'll say that you're right these days everybody pretty much skips the the opening title sequence, which I think is super regrettable. I miss really cool opening credits if you go back oh fifteen twenty years. Uh, opening credits were something that could really get you pumped you know for for a show um it's kind of become a lost art i'm thinking for example like buffy the vampire slayer you know those guitarists how did i t-
1: know how did i know you were gonna say that
0: <laughs> so um i, I missed that yeah but i think as far as like the ai issue here uh, it's i think it's it's ai creep really you know um i'm think it's really ai creep i think what you're what you're going to run into is that this is just like testing the waters well here it makes story sense so we just went ahead and did ai and then the next time it's going to be something else and um and it's just going to slowly start creeping more and more into the fabric of how these things are made um i'm not necessarily opposed to i guess artists using a- ai as a support tool of some way as as they are you know creating their art
1: yeah i i don't disagree and i think um A lot of there's been a lot of discussion on like what we should do about like the VFX side of it and the harsh working conditions. Um, and I know that's a different news story, but I feel like it's relevant, um, here. And I it's really interesting in like diving into the the little bit of research that I did in prep for this episode is that VFX studios have been hesitant to unionize, so they are currently not unionized so they could not go on strike for example uh as the writers and the screen actors uh have done uh i think the directors have taken the deal um but so it would be interesting to kind of see if they're willing to do that because the strategy right now is to just complain about harsh working conditions and try and publicly shame big studios like sony or disney or Warner Brothers, and I don't know how effective that's going to be. Um, corporations don't really care about things like that. You're going to have to hit them where it hurts, and that's where unionization and striking is the only really effective process. Um, if, if even that now with with the 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 advent of artificial intelligence being included. All right, Dave. What do you have for us this week?
0: Ah, yeah. So, uh, let's go ahead and delve back into the world of video games, a place that I, uh, I definitely call home, um, it turns out that uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on for the world of gaming right now that a lot of people may not be aware of because it is uh, you know, involving the government and court cases, and uh, it's not exactly the most sexy stuff to cover, but I think it's definitely something to talk about. Uh, as we've covered previously, uh, Microsoft is trying to acquire Activision Blizzard right now for something like $69 billion, <laughs> and uh, Sony. Yeah, and, and so oh. may- uh, you know, has has kind of like filed a grievance against that because they're afraid of, you know, what, what that would entail for them. And the FTC uh, has uh, taken the stand that this is uh, a bad thing and has, uh, you know, Kind of started antitrust proceedings and an, uh, a bid to try to block this deal from happening. Um, and as of this recording, uh, the first hearings have started. As uh, the FTC and Microsoft are basically in front of a judge, you know, in a series of hearings, trying to you know ascertain certain facts and whether this is really an antitrust issue or not. And there's been a whole bunch of really interesting revelations in the early goings of this process. That makes the whole thing seem disingenuous, I guess, is the best way to put it. Now, look, I'm not a bi- I'm not the biggest fan of ginormous corporations gobbling up other, you know, uh, other entities and becoming, you know, uh, how did early seasons of South Park say it? and you know, like I just I'm not a big fan of that concept to begin with. Um and we see how Disney, for example, is handling stuff. And I'm not, a, you know, a huge fan of Disney having become this mega corporation that owns, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and, and pretty much anything under the sun. H- however, I think it's difficult to make the argument that they're making in this FTC hearing, um, be- because so many of the things that they're talking about seem really designed, basically, not to keep the playing field level, but to kind of defend Sony's dominant place in the marketplace. And that's why this feels really disingenuous. Good example. Uh, Let's talk about some of these revelations that have hit the news so far. First of all, the FTC is trying to argue that Nintendo is not a competitor to Xbox on the console market. Why? Because the Switch is not as high powered as far as graphical uh, capabilities as the uh, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. Um, the idea here is that by arguing that Nintendo is not a competitor, uh, it'll not, it now suddenly looks like Sony and Xbox have, have like a 50, 50 market share. Um, and that this would be like tipping the scales, but if you count Nintendo in the mix, and I think saying that they're not a competitor is incredibly disingenuous, um, then Xbox is pretty solidly in third place. Uh, something that uh, they ha- have actually admitted in this in these hearings. Listen, we lost the console wars. Like we're in third place. We're in th- third place most you know console generations. This is this is nothing new, right? Like uh, this is not going to be the thing that tips the scales. Um, then there's the 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 argument about exclusivity. Uh, there's a lot of focus specifically on Call of Duty in particular, but uh, you know the FTC argued stuff like, um, you know, what if there's a really cool skin and you make this really cool skin exclusive to Xbox? Isn't that unfair? Kind Sol- of like
1: what Sony does.
0: And and that's that's kind of like you flip it around. And you're like, well, these are things that have already happened, you know, and Sony does that too. This is part and parcel of the industry, right? Um then uh, and, and that's you know, not the only exclusivity issue. they started talking about you know Starfield because obviously Bethesda is a more recent acquisition of Microsoft's and Starfield is uh, going to be Xbox exclusive now. Um, and originally the the announcement was that it was going to be multi-plat. Well it turns out uh, as has been revealed in these hearings, that uh, the reason that Xbox has decided to go exclusive with this game is because that's what Sony was trying to do. Sony was actually trying to uh, pay uh, a substantial sum to Bethesda in order to make Starfield either a completely PlayStation 5 exclusive or a timed exclusive. Um, And and one of the reasons that Microsoft then swooped in and purchased Bethesda is to avoid situations like that where they're being shut out uh, in the future. So, uh, you know, the purchase of Bethesda was in some ways, uh, reactionary when it comes to actions that, that Sony was taking. Um, but I think the most interesting revelation in all of this is that Sony, uh, is particularly really talking out of, out of both sides of its mouth at this point, because they're making the argument that they're afraid that, um, juggernaut like Call of Duty is suddenly going to be exclusive to Xbox, right? Um. But uh, in the openings of of these proceedings, uh, there was an email exchange that uh, was entered into the record between Sony's PlayStation chief, Jim Ryan, and um, uh, another guy, Chris Deering, who is the former CEO of Sony Computer Entertainment. And uh, here is what Ryan said in this email. It is not an exclusivity play at all. They're thinking bigger than that, and they have the cash to make moves like this. In other words, Ryan wasn't concerned about Call of Duty exclusivity because he had spoken to the Activision CEO at the time um, and Xbox chief Phil Spencer and had reassurances that that was not going to happen. And in fact, Sony made moves even to counter uh, this whole thing by then very quickly announcing that they were purchasing Bungie right? So Sony basically at the time that this was announced said, hey, I'm not worried about this. Call of Duty is still going to be coming to, to PlayStation. We have assurances that this is the case. And now they kind of flipped around. And this makes the whole proceedings not feel, at least so far, like really a case of the government trying to pursue um, you know, antitrust and, and, and monopoly in the market, in the video game space. Uh, it really almost feels like a defense of, of Sony's market dominance, specifically when they are pointing at uh, practices that Microsoft has done that Sony does as well. But uh, for some reason, when Sony does it, I guess it's fine. But when Microsoft does it, you know, it, it's not, right? Um, so this has been a really interesting situation. Um, and I'll, I'll plan to watch this very carefully to see where all this is going, Chris.
1: Since we're we're introducing South Park references, um Wow, the tears of unfathomable sadness uh, from Sony gamers—quite like Scott Tenorman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, it's not so much fun when someone else holds the gun, is it? Sony has made that almost like this. This, and 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 I've detailed my feelings about this since the inception of this show. PlayStation gamers and Sony itself—it feels like gatekeeping and bullying like how dare you purchase another system they are elitist and i i I have no sympathy or empathy for them the only reason that they're kicking up a fuss now is because someone is trying to give them a taste of their own medicine and i'm not caping up for microsoft um i'm just a happy xbox gamer um but like you know big corporations are bad like eat the rich like all that stuff but like come on stop stop it stop acting like you're on this like altruistic campaign to save whatever like i don't even care about call of duty i haven't played call of duty since 2007 could i couldn't care less about activision blizzard okay but the hypocrisy is astounding it's astounding just because people can simultaneously have an Xbox and a switch or have a PS five and a switch because they want that doesn't mean it's not a competitor just because I eat at McDonald's and Burger King doesn't mean they're not competitors. Okay. Like, come on, get out of here.
0: Yeah. Like I said, a lot of this feels, um, really disingenuous, um, and, and really designed to sort of protect Sony's place. Um, it's really weird to me too because like Sony maybe not to the scale of what Microsoft is doing here but but Sony has been playing this game I mean you know they they purchased um Insomniac right they pur- they purchased Bungie um Insomniac has been even before they were bought up pretty much been making almost exclusively games for uh, playstation right so are we saying that insomniac in this purchase should n- make sure that all of its games are available on both platforms like um if if Microsoft purchases Activision Blizzard it is within their right to say certain games are exclusive um and they're really and they're really tying themselves into knots here. Um, to try to make everybody happy. Like they're you know, they're saying they're committed to keeping Call of Duty on a multi-plat. They're they're committed to offering their games on com- competing cloud services because the FTC is very worried about cloud for some reason. And they're like, okay, we'll throw all our games on competing cloud services too, not just X whatever. Like they're they're jumping through all these hoops and making all these promises um that that nobody is demanding sony does like if 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 sony you know starts building you know really strong cloud sony, services sony
1: can't even sony can't even come out with like a cost-effective system you know like they have the series x for 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 the xbox like that's the 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 pinnacle of whatever the specs you want but for people like myself who are just you know Want to play the game and don't care about FPS and don't care about like all the bells and whistles, you can get the Series S for half that price. Sony doesn't have that option. It's the disc option or the no disc option, and there's not a huge bit of difference in that. And so for them to sit there and tout, like, are you going to make God of War available for other consoles? Are you going to make Spider Man available for other consoles? Oh, you're not. Get out of here. Uh, I do want to ask you, what do you think of Phil Spencer saying that um, console wars are a social construct? I thought that was hmm, interesting.
0: I think um, to, to say that these companies are not in direct competition with each other is, you know, obviously ridiculous. However, so I really liked what Spencer said, and in a lot of ways, I, you know, I like a lot of the things that Spencer has done since he's come come to to Xbox and, and taken over. You know, he's he's definitely tried to ride the ship after the really horrific launch of of the original Xbox One. But I I, I kind of agree with him. You know, like it's just another way that you know people separate themselves into the camps so they can you know say mm-hmm. I'm better than you. The, tribal- I mean, that's exactly the tribalism. Happening. The tribalism. The yeah. tribalism. Yeah. I mean you know, not everybody can do this. Obviously I, I do invest a significant, you know, amount of, of cash into gaming because it's one of my main, you know, pastimes, but I, I have a PS4 sitting in there. I got an Xbox one X sitting in there and I have my Nintendo switch. Like I'm, I, I, I have one of each, you know, and, uh, my wife has her own switch as well. And, 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 and so there's very little, very little tribalism. I mean, I remember some of that when I was a kid, I, I predominantly had Nintendo consoles and, the, the Sega kids were always very upset with me that I didn't have a Sega console. But that was more of a function of economics. Like, I couldn't afford both, so I picked the one that had games on it that I'd gravitated towards. It wasn't tribalism, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Console wars are a social construct. And I think the aging demographic in, among gamers has um, perpetuated that. I, I think that a lot of gamers of my generation are still kind of... Um, nostalgic i guess for the glory days of nintendo versus sega and they're kind of trying to keep that alive in a sony versus xbox situation and i i, I just think that's really silly
1: i it's it's funny that you say that because i didn't even know <clears throat> that nintendo versus sega was a thing until like last year like i i guess where i was i i, I guess where i'm introverted and i was like I didn't have like a whole huge sprawling friend group. I was the only boy in my household, and so I just stayed in my room playing Super Nintendo, just content with life. Like I never knew about any of that,
0: dude. The slogan of Sega at one point was "Sega does what Nintendo don't." <laughs> like, like they were really they were really in your face and blatant about it. Like very, very much so. You know,
1: I did have a Dreamcast, but that's the next generation, so. Can tell you,
0: yeah. So this is this is definitely a story to keep an eye on uh, as as it progresses. I think this is supposed to stretch all the way potentially into August, which would be very bad for Microsoft because they have to, I think, close on this deal by July 18th, or the whole thing is going to fall through. So. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's Nerd News. If you'd like to uh, jump onto social media and tell us what you think of the AI-generated opening credits for Secret Invasion or the revelations so far from the FTC Microsoft hearings, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at thatnerddave and at thatnerdchris. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be reviewing The Flash <laughs> Welcome back, nerds. The DC Extended Universe is in its death throes. It's almost time to move on to a new cinematic incarnation of DC movies, but we have to burn off a few more movies before we get there. And one of those is The Flash, which we will be reviewing in this week's All right, so this is a classic movie review stuff. Uh, We are going to each have three likes and three dislikes, and then we're going to give the movie a final grade. Uh, Let's go ahead and jump right in. A lot of people have been talking about this one, Chris, so I don't think it needs a whole lot of introduction. Uh, What is your first like of The Flash? (laughs) You can tell I'm laughing.
1: (laughs) Um, I'm glad this movie's over and been released. And I'm glad we're almost done with this first iteration of the DCEU. I'm ready to wipe the slate clean. Uh, The only two remaining entries, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the only two remaining entries are Aquaman 2 and Blue Beetle, both of which I'm very excited for. Blue Beetle in particular. But we're almost there. We are almost at the finish line. We are almost at the graveyard. And I can't wait for it to be over. And we just wipe this light clean. I need the Men in Black memory wipe thing for some of these movies. And this was one of them. Um, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I did not like this movie. I had to struggle to find three likes, but I'm glad that it's over. And the whole, will they release it with Ezra Miller? Won't they? What will they do? All this hullabaloo. I'm just glad it's over. And it's the box office turd that it is
0: yeah i actually um i actually texted you while i was watching it and i said this is making me nostalgic for the snyder cut because (laughs) (laughs) it was it was quite it was quite a slog to get through so i was quite pleased when the movie was over as well um and and i think it's fair to say that the dc extended universe um as it stands has been a really really mixed bag um and the flash as a character has definitely fallen more on the on the negative side than the positive um because this particular, you know, Ezra Miller's interpretation of Barry Allen does not particularly feel like Barry Allen, um, any incarnation of Barry Allen, whether that's comics or TV or whatnot. Um, and so it's very, very difficult to to get a good hold of this character and, and any enjoyment because it's so far out of the left field, uh, both in writing and performance from what you expect from a Barry Allen. So, um, yeah, um, me too, I guess. <laughs> I'm glad it's over. To, uh, about to be over too.
1: Okay, so I just can't help but be a type two, and I want to see my friends and family happy, and I want to do nice things for those that are close to me, and that's why the only real like, the only real positive that I had from this movie, I let you have here with your first like, Dave.
0: And that is so nice of you because uh, I'm I'm I am I going to mispronounce the name again, probably. But two L's Supergirl, make a, two
1: L's two L's make a Y sound. Come on now.
0: <laughs> two L's make a Y so it's Sasha Kaye. Ay ay ay, she was awesome. Like I love this this version of of Supergirl. Um really really did. I I liked the the look although it's very divergent from from the uh, from the comic books. There's something about the suit design, uh there's something about uh the the hair do that she sports in this. There's something about the general vibe that she pro- uh, projects, you know, like like wounded You know, because she's been, you know, locked up for so long, but at the same time, um, you know, remembers that, you know, the the symbol on her chest is supposed to stand for hope and still tries to do the right thing. Um, I really like how she moved. There was something very, um, different from other Kryptonians or even from, you know, Superman. If you look even at like the whole breadth of the DCEU, there was something very different about how she fought, how she kind of reared back and then charged forward. Um, she she had that move like several times and I thought it was so like, I don't know, it was just a very cool visual. Uh, she had a very unique way of how she moved in fight scenes uh, that I really appreciated. And one of the few scenes in the whole movie that I think really worked and actually elicited uh, an emotional response for me is when they're trying to give uh, Barry Allen his powers back by getting him struck by lightning. Uh, that whole scene was silly but then she shows up and she she lifts him up into the into the storm she carries him up into the sky and she just looks at him and says i got you and it's just like that was one of the few moments where it's like bam you know i felt that one that was that was a cool moment that felt really unearned in the grand scheme of the of the movie but it was just a really cool you know moment and i'll also go so far as to say even you know not on screen I think she really really lived up to the role of supergirl. I mean, they made her sort of like the main face of this movie as far as like the press junket and doing interviews yes. and everything give, given you know all the the problems that the star of this movie has had, all the baggage associated with them. And and she carried this just just flawlessly, you know, like it it's even so regrettable how little she is ultimately in this movie considering that she was probably the most mesmerizing thing on screen for the runtime of this movie. Like I-, I wish we would have gotten a lot more of her. And that's really regrettable because I was one of the main voices when, you know, this movie was uh, first announced and what it was going to be like uh, that said, I just want to, fl- I just want the flash in a flash movie. Like, can we just do a movie about the flash? I don't need Batman and I don't need Supergirl. I just want the flash. Um, but ultimately she was the most interesting thing on screen th- throughout. Uh, so anytime she showed up, it was gold. Um, and I know they've already announced they're making a Supergirl movie based on Woman of Tomorrow. And I think it's probably fair to say they're likely to recast. A lot of stuff kind of has gone down the toilet because this movie has bombed. But I really, really, really wish that they would keep her around and give her another crack at this character. Um, because she I think she has great, great potential to be like one of the definite Supergirls, period.
1: yeah and so like sorting through the rubble (laughs) that is this movie um it's like i said it's the only net positive that i see from this uh from this film and unfortunately i think she may be a casualty of this film and and it's deeply regrettable um and it's 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 almost sickening how she was utilized and the fact that she was destined to die no matter what like that was gross that and, and 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 keaton's batman as well like they both were just destined to die that was it It was it was it was nothing short of gross and if if they do indeed recast and they don't use her in the future with that which is i think is a huge misstep and, and it would be a huge blunder then i'm excited to follow the career of sasha kaye myself like whatever work she does in the future.
0: I will also say that I seem to recall seeing on social media that she posted that there had been some talks uh, between her people and and Warner. Um, I'm really really hoping that this is a good a good sign that they if might for no her other around. if
1: for no other reason then as you said she had to be the face of this movie because of Ezra Miller's antics. And so, if for no other reason, like she deserves this, like she had to do the press junkets, she did the posing with the action figure on social media, like, did all the interviews. Like, she deserves this.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right, Chris, so what is your your second like of of The Flash?
1: Now, I have been one of the greatest critics of Batfleck. Um, I just don't buy it. It just doesn't work for me. I think it's a miscast, but in a movie where I'm scrambling to find anything that I liked. I think he was a pleasant surprise more out of the costume, surprisingly than in, um, <clears throat> the voice still feels like he's putting on something. Like it feels rehearsed. doesn't feel natural, but, um, he, he was a pleasant surprise. And I, I, I kind of dug what, what Affleck was doing here. Um, and like I said, my first, like, I'm just glad we're done.
0: Yeah, so um, I, I, do you mind if I c- just go ahead and launch into my second like because yeah, it is extremely yep. related to this? I agree that Affleck was a very very pleasant surprise. Um, I I actually liked quite a bit about that opening sequence, although I did not like that. Basically, uh, again, you know, this is supposed to be a Flash movie, and it it didn't really oftentimes feel like a Flash movie. Like the opening is very much like Flash is Aaron Boy for Batman, you know. And he even says at one point, I know I'm like the, the guy who cleans up the messes in the Justice League, but why am I always cleaning up bad messes, you know? Um, but what I really liked is, uh, you know, for one, the the blue cowl and cape. I don't think the design was perfect, but I always liked the gray and blue look in the comic books. Um, and the fact that they set this scene in daytime, uh, I think really leaned into that a little bit. Um, I'm really hoping that that's a look Uh, that they emulate in, you know, in the future as a, a suit, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be this suit, but having like multiple suits for Batman makes sense anyways. And so having like this lighter with the blue and the gray, I always really liked. I liked Affleck's performance here. I thought he was perfectly fine, especially as Bruce Wayne. You know, I said there were only a handful of scenes that really had any kind of emotional resonance, but when him and Barry are talking about the possibility of Barry going back in time, that's, that's he, the
1: scene. Yeah. that's And how he
0: talks about how his scars define him and that, you know, he wouldn't take like that. That was a really, really good scene. Um, and then, you know, when talking about the Batman situation of it all, dude, I liked Keaton a lot in this again. Um, I know that there were some issues there too. The, the the horrible week there at the start was laughable when he was first introduced, um, but it's it's shocking to me how natural this role comes to Keaton. Even you know, as long as it has been since he's played it, like as you said, when Affleck is Batman, it feels like he's putting on a voice. With Keaton, it doesn't feel like he's putting on a voice. You know, like he sounds different as Batman, but it's it seems very natural. And I think he did a really, really good job, which again makes me makes me regret that we didn't get to see Batgirl, because seeing him in that context a little bit more Gotham City based and not um you know in this in this really weird hodgepodge of a movie would have been really interesting. Um, so the Batman situation was cool, I think, except for the last shot of the movie. I did not need to see George Clooney as Bruce Wayne again. I thought that was the height of silliness. I know that they they were left with a with a difficult situation. So my understanding is that originally the ending was going to be that Michael Keaton gets out of that limo, right? And the implication is that when you know he fixed the timeline, that Keaton's Batman and and Kaye's uh, Supergirl were folded into his timeline, right? And that's why we had Keaton then again in, in the Batgirl movie, right? This was going to be like the the, the Batman of the DCEU going forward. And then when that just became not the direction they're going in, they kind of scrambled. Miller was not really available for any kind of reshoots to redo the ending, um, which is why you'd never see the two in a shot together, right? It's just kind of like A, B, A, B, back and forth. Um, and so they decided on this gag ending. But I think I think the gag ending probably did more to damage the movie than anything else, and and I'll talk about that I think in my dislikes a little bit. But yeah, the Batman situation was shockingly cool here. Uh, nostalgia, you know, a little bit sure, but I think uh, both Affleck and and Keaton kind of brought it here.
1: Oh, I think I think my my overarching reaction, aside from my love for Sasha Kaye, and hope that she gets future work in DC superhero movies has just made me all the more pissed off about the Batgirl situation. I think that's probably my greatest takeaway. Like, this is the movie... <clears throat> this is the movie with a lead actor as problematic as they come. And all of the mess. And, like, this is the cash cow that they had to absolutely release. Everything else is a tax write-off. This is the movie in instead of Batgirl? Like, come on. Come on. Okay, but I don't want to get to the dislikes too much. Um, I do want to say, um, as a Batman Forever defender, I would have liked to see Val Kilmer. You know what? Me too. I love Val Kilmer, and I know that Val's been through a lot, and he's in a different stage in his life, but that would have made me oh so happy. Um, But... Yeah, I, I, outside of the, <clears throat> like, I I texted you this, um, like, this movie is so deeply unserious, to borrow a phrase from our, our Gen Z kids. Like, it's so unserious. We have a baby in a microwave. <laughs> we have a baby in a microwave.
0: I don't want to further discuss this that scene. It's nightmare fuel.
1: And then... Everything about Keaton's intro is so goofy. Like ooh, the long-haired hippie in slippers or sandals, whatever, like it's so unserious. So outside of Keaton's intro, loved it.
0: Yeah, see, that that's that's that I totally agree with that. That opening scene with him when he was first introduced, I hated that. But everything after that he felt very much of batman and i and i liked it a great deal i like his performance it's just keaton is you know keaton is one of those guys that he can read the phone book and you're going to be entertained in some way you know the guy has always been really uh charismatic and magnetic to watch um i'm not the biggest fan of the fact that they're making another beetlejuice but i can't help myself i'm probably going to check it out just because i really like keaton so um you know we'll see all right chris what is your final like of the movie
1: I think our likes are intertwined here as well. So I'll start with mine and we'll probably expound into yours. Um, I think the idea of a younger Barry was promising. Just the execution was god-awful. I don't know. I don't know what the hell WB has going on with their wig department. We start with Jesse Eisenberg's Dead Shrew. We go to Hippie. No, then we have I'm the little lad who loves berries and cream with younger Ezra Miller. Like, and then we have hippie Keaton. Like it's so bad. Like the entire hair situation for these characters is just God awful. But the, I keep telling myself, this is the likes section. The idea of an 18 year old Barry is great. Did they execute it? God, no.
0: Yeah. I think there was some potential here for, for a decent, Movie at least right, and I think that's my final like here. So I just I, there was a lot of potential, the the movie squandered quite a bit of it. Um, but you know the idea of of kind of going back in time, facing off with your younger self, dealing with the person you were, and then moving forward from that, you know, closing a chapter in, in, uh, in the book of your life, all of that stuff, you know, is is very interesting. It didn't help, I think, in some ways that young Barry was not the younger version of the Barry we were following. Like he was very different because he had grown up with a mother and everything. So he was just a very different person. So, you know, for, for much of the movie, <clears throat> it felt like, let's say, quote unquote, our Barry never was looking at young Barry as a younger version of himself, but more like a a different version or uh, an alternate possibility right so he never really had to face off like with his past or who he was growing up or anything like that there was a real disconnect with the between the two characters considering they were supposed to be the same person um but yeah there was definitely potential here i think um and that's definitely a positive i mean <laughs> i don't know man i think we're gonna have to get into dislikes i'm struggling
1: we need an worlds of what this movie could have been <laughs>
0: You you mean an episode where we fix it? I'm going to need at least a year before we revisit this yeah. one. I need a break,
1: and yeah. therapy. <laughs>
0: Probably. All right, let's jump into the dislikes, Chris. What have you got?
1: And I've seen interviews where there there was ideas introduced here, and there were cut. I don't know the whole shebang about it. But Dave, how how many? Help me out here because I tapped out after the beginning of season three. The Flash on the CW has been running for like nine seasons, correct?
0: Nine seasons, yes, sir.
1: Nine seasons. One of the most successful, even if it's not catered to my taste, one of the most successful superhero television series. And it's all centered around the character you're trying to feature here. And he doesn't make an appearance? Not using Grant Gustin who even my misgivings about the show are strictly with the script and like just the cartoonish, like, oh, Barry's goofing up the timeline again. Grant Gustin is great, great in the role of the Flash. And not using him here and instead doubling down, quite literally you doubled down on your problematic lead in exchange for that is an unforgivable sin in my opinion
0: how wild would it have been if he goes if he goes back in time and young barry is is grant gustin
1: <laughs> he has a youthful face it could easily yeah. be done
0: and it's like hey why why i suddenly look different you know like I, it would have been that would have been an interesting one i think um yeah but even even in the in that um cursed cameo section of the movie the fact that they basically have like I don't know, random AI-generated Flash, Jay Garrick in there, like they couldn't even bother to have John Wesley Shipp in there or something, boggles the mind. It's very, for a movie that is like The Flash's first solo cinematic outing, it's very disrespectful to the history of the character. Um, Seems like such a weird thing to not reference the past of that character on television in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I don't get that at all.
1: Okay Dave, I think I think your first dislike is the long and the short of it, even though Thomas Wayne has guns as Batman and he has a red costume.
0: I'm just not a big fan of flashpoint man and and maybe a lot of that has to do with that. I never really felt it was a very good flash story um It's one of eight trillion uh alternate timeline or or alternate universe stories where everything goes sideways for dc and there's been so uh there's been so so many of those over the years you know and flashpoint is just really in a lot of ways another one of those um and when you look at the uh, at the um at the flashpoint comic story um what kind of holds that story together and makes it at least A little bit more about the flash is the fact that you know you have reverse flash there as the guy who sort of revealed to be the one who you know killed barry's mom and is sort of the main mastermind behind all that blah 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 and of course that's been you know sort of omitted here um and they never really like address in the movie like how barry's mom died right like I'm not the only one that that feels that way. Like, like there's also
1: I like like isn't... like Zod. There's no real big bad. Like Zod is is sure. Like that. Maybe that's another dislike. But like, there's no like objective villain. Like I have to defeat this person because this.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and there's there's. <laughs> There's just so much here that that completely went off the rails because Flashpoint is just not a very good flash story. It, you know, was used by DC Comics sort of the reboot into the new 52, right? And if that's what they were trying to do here, is to use this movie as saying, okay, this is, you know, we're changing everything, and this is why the, you know, the DC extended universe is going to be different from now on. I would at least kind of understand why they went with that as their Flash movie, but considering how many better flash stories there are that are actually focused on the flash, uh, and his supporting characters. Like, you know, a lot of Flash's supporting characters were barely even blips in this because he spends like 90% of the movie in an alternate timeline. Right. So it's just not a very good story that focuses on the flash. And because of that, I think the movie misses the mark by huge margin. We just need it some actual flash you know if that makes sense i mean there there is like a scene at the beginning of the movie where these two people are like teasing him or something and one of them is supposed to be if i understood like the 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 credits correctly is supposed to be patty spivot like she's you know a supporting character from from you know flash comic books and i don't think she ever actually even went named like she was there for like two seconds and she was gone and i think that that's sort of the 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 underlying problem of this movie is that it is not concerned with being a flash movie it's really more concerned with being a dc movie if that makes sense um and i think that's why it misses the mark by pretty wide margin for me
1: and and while we're combining, we're sharing is caring here today, Dave. If you don't mind, I'm going to go straight into my second dislike. Do it. <clears throat> so, Iris West, even in my peripheral, casual fan knowledge, I know that that is a pretty important character in the Flash universe, correct?
0: Yes, sir.
1: <laughs> and and Kiersey Clemens is a promising, you know... Casting in the role, I think the world of Candace Patton, especially all the BS she's had to put up with, um, and she, um, let's be honest, she was one of the main reasons I kept tuning in, but I think Kiersey Clemons is, is well cast in the role. So let's let's recap here. <clears throat> Kiersey Clemens is Iris West. I believe has zero speaking lines in Justice League, Zack Snyder's. Justice League extravaganza, zero speaking lines, and she's. I think after-
0: I think I think that I think the hot dogs had more speaking lines in that scene.
1: <laughs> and then she's less than an afterthought in this movie. She like, and then th- when they do portray her, she's a journalist that oversteps her boundaries and makes him feel uncomfortable. They have a beer. And then she shows up at the end. Like, how do you tell, to your point, a Flash story, particularly Barry Allen, and that's how you treat Iris West? It's it's just unforgivable.
0: Again, because the movie is centered on the concept of an alternate timeline. And you can't really do anything with the Flash of supporting characters in an alternate timeline when this is the very first movie featuring or focusing on the flash and featuring many of these supporting characters. We've talked about this before, but the the fun of an alternate timeline is always that the original timeline is well-established. You understand and know the characters well, and then you can play inversion with those characters, right? And one of the things that didn't work here is a, we, we didn't have the supporting characters to lean into uh, because we didn't know them. Um, And then, even the alternate versions of characters we did get, you know, there is no DCEU Supergirl, so this isn't an alternate version of Supergirl that we can like compare and contrast. So, all you're really left with is is Batman, but this isn't really an alternate version of Batman so much as it is a retro throwback version uh, to the old 89 movie, right? So, um, the fun of the alternate timeline storytelling tropes is pretty much out the window with this movie.
1: I think one of, I think one of the biggest disappointments in this movie is it almost rubs salt in the wound for how poorly this universe has been set up. Like, how is it like we're in the death throes of the DCEU and we're, we're getting our first like Justice League team up, like just like almost like a casual, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. We had the Justice League movies, but like, this is like, oh, this is like, an opening of a comic book where the justice league is wrapping up one of these crimes and saving the day. Like this should not be happening now. This has been have been established in like the second or third film in this connected universe. And like the entirety of the justice league is bat fleck, Barry Allen's flash and a, a, a Gal Gadot's wonder woman, who shows up late in, and is in one cameo with like a line or two. That's the Justice League?
0: Am I the only one who feels that they are burning off her contractual appearances with these really short cameos? We had her in Shazam, we have her here. It almost feels like they're just burning off her appearances that are like contractually obligated or something.
1: As As someone who isn't a huge fan of... Of her acting, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Like it's like the first Wonder Woman film is is okay, um, and like it's almost become a meme at this point. Like enough champagne to fill the Nile. Like that whole thing, Kalel no. Like I, I'm I'm okay with that, but it, there's no cohesive nature to any of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong, man.
1: Which which I think directly. Uh, Man, we're we're of, like, one mind today. That d- directly ties into your second dislike.
0: The, the movie never really coalesces around a clear conflict or a clear message. You've already pointed out that Zod is here, but he's certainly not the main antagonist or the main goal to overcome. Because ultimately, Barry decides, oh, well, I can't save this world, so oops. You know? Um, and then this, like, future version of young Barry that has kind of gone bad is, like on screen for what, like two minutes tops, and uh, is certainly not the main obstacle to overcome. So if you then boil it down, what is the obstacle to overcome in this movie? Well, I mean, it has potential because the idea is that Barry needs to learn some lessons to let go of the past, to move forward into the future, to understand that he can't mess with the past. Okay, sure. So the main conflict here is then an inner conflict. If done well, that can work. But that doesn't really coalesce either um, because there's just too many things here that do not make sense. Um, so so let's, let's go ahead and go back to hippie Bruce Wayne for a second and his totally awesome bowl of multiversal spaghetti. Um, so the theory that he postulates is that when Barry went back in time and changed one thing, namely that whole tomato can situation, that it wasn't a singular pivot point and everything moving forward from that point would be different, but that when you change something in the past, that there are ripples that go both forward and backwards through time and change all sorts of stuff. And so by messing with the space-time continuum, you're creating, in essence, alternate timelines, a multiverse. Okay, I'm with you so far. The only problem is... When Barry says, well, I can't save this world. This is just where this world dies and then turns around and changes this, the tomato can situation to restore everything, because that should only be a solution. If we're talking about this being one cohesive timeline and not a multiverse. So basically what we're looking at, if this was a a multiverse accidentally created by the flash, um, he just like let an entire planet die. As and then just went back home, right? That also throws really the ending in the question, right? Because if he created by by changing the past the multiverse with and it, those ripples basically basically create alternate timelines, but don't affect the main timeline, then why was there a different Bruce Wayne when he came back? None of that makes sense. But the most important thing, I think, ultimately that 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 kind of defeats the central inner conflict of this movie is that Barry is supposed to learn to let go of the past and to move forward into the future, that he cannot change the past. And how does the movie resolve? Instead of moving one tomato can, he just moves a whole crap ton of tomato cans. He is still changing something in the past in order to affect the future. He has not, in fact, actually learned his lesson. So the inner conflict of this movie is completely flushed down the toilet, and 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 devoid of a really interesting conflict, either external or internal. The movie just becomes a collection of scenes.
1: Speaking of tomatoes, I would like to throw tomatoes at this movie if at all possible. So uh, <laughs> I don't know about cans; that seems a little bit a little bit too violent. But I would like to throw tomatoes at this movie. Uh, it just, I think it all boils down to like I, I really hate this trope of messing with the timeline, the butterfly effect, what have you like, it's just such a tired and played out. And I swear to God, I want to put a ban on multiverse stories for, for this foreseeable future. I, I I'm at my limit of not only because, <clears throat> you know, we can't tell a good story, it, it's whatever. These are so unimaginative when it comes to the multiverse Like we talked about this with, with Dr. Strange, like it really kind of dropped the ball on what you could play with when you have endless possibilities. Okay. Now they kind of recoup some of that with like the musical note fight scene and stuff like that. But, you know, as, as you correctly pointed out in, (laughs) in contrast to something like everything everywhere, all at once, like that's the big leagues, baby. If you want to tell a multiverse story, that's the big leagues. That's the mark. Okay. And so everything kind of pales in comparison. Like, your idea for an alt universe is Barry in a bad wig? Like, come on.
0: Yeah, I got nothing to add. You're correct. All right. That uh, brings us to your final dislike of the movie.
1: So I feel it's kind of apropos that I talked about artificial intelligence for my news story because nearly everything about this film felt like artificial intelligence, (laughs) like almost like a cautionary tale. Like, listen, those writers are right to be on strike because this felt like it was written by AI. Uh, Everything about this film felt artificial and hollow. It's almost like it was paint by numbers. It was incredibly predictable. Like, and there was no emotional resonance. Like, like, Even the stuff that we're supposed to like care about, like everything to do with Barry's mom felt like it was being like our face was being dunked underwater and they were telling us to drink. This is the part where you drink. Um, How his mom, bless her, didn't recognize him as the stranger she hugged in the grocery store at the end. Like that was foolish. That was goofy. The script was, so cheap, like it felt. It wasn't even CW level script. It was like Hallmark Channel level script. Ooh. Like it's, it's bad. It's bad. And the only way I can get through those movies if I've got some eggnog, and I'm talking the good eggnog around the holidays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything about this movie was just kind of soulless. Like it did not land on anything and i think maybe that's like a meta contextual thing where you have this problematic person who at the center of the role who can't stay out of their own way in ezra miller and barry can't stay out of his own way as the central character like can't stop effing everything up like it's just i'm just glad it's over man
0: yeah yeah well (laughs) Sharing is caring, right? So since we're talking about artificial, let's go ahead and talk about my final dislike. The special effects in this movie did not really work. Um, And I'm sure that there's a multitude of reasons for this. Um, You know, time pressure, changing, you know, situations. God knows what all was going on behind the scenes. This movie was like cursed for years, even trying to make it. So it's hard telling what like the underlying issue issues were that the special effects team encountered but there is something very well as you said uh artificial very fake about many of the special effects shots and they really really take you out um of the movie um that's really regrettable now we've talked a lot about you know you know questionable um special effects you know in recent marvel productions but i have to say this one is really this one was really taking the cake um the 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 scene which i absolutely despised in the beginning when he's trying to save the babies that are all flying out of a, a hospital window um those were some really uncanny valley babies man like you know the emotion of the of the moment was completely lost because it was so clear like the dancing baby from Ellie McBeal looked looked more realistic i think
1: listen also here's here's what i immediately what i thought i've already seen this you know it's bad if a fox x-men movie does this better than you
0: Yes. Quicksilver. Yes.
1: Quicksilver. Evan Peters Quicksilver did this loads better than you.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then we uh we have, you know, um a lot of the fight scenes. Uh I really liked, again, how how Sasha Kaye moved in, in those fight scenes, but any that she transitioned from being her to being CGI, the shots just looked so oddly rubbery and 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 fake. It was very is, is very very clear where the special effects started and stopped you know what I mean when it was when it was her it looked good but when when it transitioned to the cgi there was this really rubbery stretchy it was very odd and i feel almost bad for the director because some of the shots the way they were you know you can see that they're set up looked really cool right but the special effects never quite, achieve the level of realism to make it look good. I'm thinking, for example, about like when the Batwing crashes and Batman is like has ejected and is slowly going down towards the ground with his cape, you know? Like that shot looked really cool, but the special effects looked so PS2. It, I mean it was very hard to you know it's very hard to to feel the feel that moment when it was so artificial. Um, and then the, and then the cameos man. Um, that that whole scene where they're looking at like the the multiverse and and the various planets collapsing and everything was so bad. It was so bad. Um when 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 Chris Reeve Superman like landed and the and the camera like you know focuses in on him and you realize who it is, it looked like a cardboard cutout. I mean it really truly did. Um the Nicolas Cage thing, he looked he looked basically like somebody was wearing a Nicolas Cage rubber mask.
1: I swear to God um, I swear to God someone said that he was on set for that and i said b s there's no way
0: I'm not buying that either um but you know as much as i'm and I'm a huge you know chris Reeve fan I love his Superman and I love I love him in a lot of roles um um but the thing that really kind of got to me was that they actually had a cameo of the George Reeve superman and and so if you know a little bit of the background there um he was never particularly thrilled with that role and he got really famous for it and typecast for it and he was really down that he couldn't do other things anymore and and his death you know is is very controversial and mysterious was officially ruled a suicide and there's you know speculation that maybe his his declining status in Hollywood and his typecasting as a children's character contributed to some kind of depression. And so given the complexities of George Reeves' history, to then you know, revive him like this and put him back on the screen as Superman, a role that he was really conflicted about and that may have even contributed potentially to his death, feels so, so icky. That whole sequence was just icky from top to bottom. CGI resurrecting Chris Reeves just to go ahead and and have his whole reality collide with another reality and kill him off. It's just weird, man. Like, there were so many odd choices being made in that scene. Um, And the special effects did not help a lick. It was the, the weirdest looking, fakiest looking it just, it, it didn't sell the product. And, you know, I understand, you know, CG, blah, blah, blah. Uh, special effects are hard, blah, blah, all I understand all this, right? But then you got to make some choices, right? If you can't pull it off, then go in a different yes, direction. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: You know, like, this, let's go ahead and say, um, we, th- this, this computer-generated Chris Reeve looks awful. The computer-generated Helen Slater looks awful. Okay, what can we do? Well, you know, MFers, Brandon Routh is right there. Okay so so let's go ahead and use him and and Melissa Benoit, Benoist is right there so let's go ahead and use her and there you have a superman and supergirl boom shaka laka like problem solved right um th- there are you know, Nicholas Cage's CGI model looks horrible. You know, then bring the guy on set, fit him in a Superman outfit. You know, you cannot tell me that making a Superman suit for this cameo for for Nicholas Cage would have been more expensive than that god awful CG. I don't believe that for. And a second. you can't like,
1: tell me, you can't tell me that Nicholas Cage, as campy as Nicholas Cage is, that he'd be he wouldn't be down for that.
0: He totally would have been down for that. Um, so I don't know, also, man. I just, also, like,
1: here's another one. We had a CG, a bad CGI, Henry Cavill.
0: Don't even, don't even, man. Come on! As if couldn't, you couldn't bring him in, really? It's just, it's, at some point, you got to just make some make some tough choices, right? And if something doesn't work, then you got to go in a different direction. You just have no choice in the matter because as, as it is, what we've released here is a movie that, that feels, at least from the effect side, deeply unfinished. And it's visually very jarring when you're watching this movie. This is very, very jarring to get anything out of this. Um, as much as I loved Michael Keaton in the role, um, what was wrong with putting like a stuntman in that suit for many of the action sequences? Why was there so much CGI Michael Keaton Batman? You know, like let's let's rather do it a little bit more realistically, a little more groundedly and get something out of it. Um Rather than going full fakie and then taking everybody out of the moment in the movie, like that was probably the thing that took me out of the story over and over again. The most is when those special effects shots kicked in. And you know what? I'm gonna say it again. Don't get me started on how bad the running looks in these movies. Uh, You know, it's bad when season one of the Flash the running scenes looked better than they do in this picture. Uh, It's just it's not it for a major motion picture. This is just not good. Uh, and what's with that goofy pose that Ezra Miller always pulled oh, right before started running? Like, I I know that like one of the things that they tried to do when when Snyder was still directing was kind of like liken the flashes running to like almost ice skating, which I think is a weird choice, but it just it just doesn't work for me, man. So the, the visually, man, the, the this, this this movie just did not work.
1: I, 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 One quick point before we get to our final grades, Dave. I want to know what cursed universe that we're in. And I know that Rotten Tomatoes is cursed forevermore, tainted, if you will. How is this movie fresh at 65% and an audience score of 84?
0: I, I, I don't even know, man. I have no idea. I'm flabbergasted. And, and I walk into every comic book movie wanting to love it. Like that's just I love comic books, I just love these characters, and I love these stories, and I love d c and I just i you know, I always walk in just wanting to love it, like just give me something to love and this 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 was hard to love, man all right, Chris, final grades
1: i I really hated most of this movie, and the only the only positive outcomes were Kaye, who was criminally underused and killed off in a kind of sick and distasteful way and Keaton in the same, in the same regard, like you bring him back just to kill him off in this endless cycle of death. Um, and then the whole stereotypical, like hippie cooks for us as he's explaining a whole lot of exposition. Um, it's a demon Yeah. Who made,
0: who who a made D- Batman minus. the time, who made Batman the time travel expert by the way? Yeah.
1: Yeah. D minus, And that's being generous. What about you?
0: You know that I'm the harder grader. <laughs> um, so my, my mark, my benchmark would be, is there something redeeming in this movie that makes me want to watch it again? Like, could I actually sit, see myself, you know, a year from now of my own volition sitting down and watching this movie again for funsies? No, I could not, not even in a, it's, it's so bad. It's entertaining, you know, mystery science, zero 3000 way. Like,
1: I hate I'd watch to say that. Ba- I watch Bat I would watch Batman and Robin on an endless loop before I'd watch this movie one more time.
0: And that and that right there it is, and that's why I think this movie has to get an F for me, man. Um it's just it's it's I I, I want to say this. I'm
1: seeing a lot of a lot of acclaim for Ezra Miller's performance and number one that's kind of gross of you. Number two, I don't see it there was abs- that i meant to say this in in the dislike that was that was one of the hollow parts of the performance um you, we 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 talked about this after you finished is like Ezra milla was 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 great in the the fantastic beast role where they played this like creepy shadowy character i've credence something whatever I, I don't
0: revival I think the, <laughs> name <of> the
1: <laughs> no don't you besmirch ccr on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the rain no <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh
1: yeah I so i don't I don't get it uh the their performance was hollow it lacked emotion it felt staged and I got nothing no emotion out of that performance so I don't see it yeah
0: yeah, um, I'll go ahead and I'll echo that. I think Young Barry in particular may be one of the most annoying performances this side of like anything. I'm not even qu- I'm not even quite sure how some of those lines ever left were left in the script. Why is it so cold? It's the Arctic Barry. Like Jesus Christ, dude. Um, there was like there was like zero likability in that character, and and quote unquote our Barry was just kind of there.
1: Oh, also, oh my God. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Um, what was, what did? Oh my God, I can't even get these words out. What was younger Barry's costume? A, you're gonna have to get the bleep button. A birdized version of a bat costume. That's his flat co- flash costume. Like, ugh.
0: So D minus from you, F for me. Um, I just I I found. Really very, very little to enjoy in this movie. It was kind of a slog to watch. Okay, okay. And, okay. and I'm glad let's I'm get done with it.
1: Stuff, Let's get to the stuff we liked. <laughs>
0: yes, please. <laughs> let's do. Um,
1: we're
0: going to go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be back with some nerd commendations. So stick around. All right, folks, we're back and it's time for this week's Chris, what's good?
1: Oh my gosh, dude! I I got to show some love to my twin brother, uh, Chris Hemsworth, and I. Born on the same day, so I'm already tapped in on the first Extraction film. I absolutely loved it, and man, Extraction Two did not disappoint. This is like quintessentially. I think I saw someone on Twitter say this. This is quintessentially what these Netflix movies should be. Like, stop trying to go after like the star power and whatever like this is like a popcorn movie this is like one of those like 90s like era like action flicks where like it's a non-stop thrill ride adrenaline pumping i love how global these moves uh, movies are the first one is set in south asia i believe bangladesh this one is set in the country of georgia um so like west asia middle east kind of area eastern europe um and it's just really really fun um as as and 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 i think hemsworth is like it's just a masterful portrayal as like this soldier of fortune like mercenary the cast is really great um idris elba makes an appearance uh gulshifta farahani as nick khan uh returns in this one and i think she's absolutely money like she's absolutely money and so like i'm excited to see her in future projects because she's she outsold in this movie so um it tldr version you have like the georgian like crime syndicate um and one of them is imprisoned and he takes his family into prison with him and the wife Wants to escape, and so they're the ones being extracted. Uh, it's a non stop thrill ride. A lot of it is like these one camera ex, uh, extended shots, so it feels like atmospheric, it feels like you're there and this is happening. So, non stop thrill ride. If, if you have a couple of hours free, um, and you got some popcorn sitting at the house, go watch Extraction and Extraction 2. They're both great, great films. And I, you know what? I'm going to check out C.U. the graphic novel these are based on. Uh, also, Joe and Anthony Russo are involved in this. So it's if you like Winter Soldier and stuff like that, I'm not, I don't know if this is on the level of that, but it's it's darn good filmmaking.
0: So I've not, uh, I've not watched uh, the first one yet, so uh, clearly by your um, high praise, I'm going to have to give this a shot. So I'm going to go ahead and put it on my list to watch.
1: All right, so this this might be your favorite thing in nerddom right now, Dave. So go ahead and wax poetic.
0: Yeah, I, you know, strange Star Trek Strange New Worlds recently came back, and as of recording, the first two episodes have aired. And my God, if this is not the most Star Trek Star Trek that ever Star Treked, would um, It just feels so close to the spirit of the original series um, and and so close to the spirit of what Star Trek is supposed to be all about. Um, the first episode was a lot of fun, you know, kind of fish out of water, water stuff with Spock, which, you know, is, is always really welcome and fun. Um, but the second episode, man, the second episode was amazing dealing with, um, number one who is uh you know genetically modified which is something that is outlawed in the federation so they put her on trial for falsifying her records and it harkens back to some of those original series episodes where they did like you know sort of trial preceding episodes um yes and and, and at the same time it also harkens back to stuff that's very clear social commentary and very clearly draws parallels to modern day and issues that are you know common these days um and and for that and and just how how it you know makes a statement and how the story flows and everything man i have, i had a tear in my eye by the end of this by the end of this episode it's just a very quintessence of star trek and so i'm thrilled that uh, strange new worlds is back two episodes in and i absolutely adore it yet again i think it's it's probably some of the best trek we've had in a very very long time uh I, there's been a lot of trek that i've liked but i think this is probably the best it's been since ds9 um and i absolutely adore this show and just everybody should be watching star trek strange new worlds there is no no nothing more quintessentially star trek than this show
1: man i'm all over the place when it comes to my viewing history i've kind of pressed the pause button on my buffy first watch i'm re-watching gargoyles a little bit i played around with watching battlestar galactica um, I'm watching The Bear, another great show. That's not a nerdy show, but God, it's good. It is everything everyone says it is. Um, I'm watching, I'm watching Lower Decks because you binged all three seasons and I'm still in season two. So you beat me at my own nerd commendation. Um, and then I still have season four of Disco to watch. I've got uh second season of Picard, um, and, and then third season. This- Uh, yeah. And, um, so I've, I've got, I've got a lot of watching to do. I watched like the first two or three episodes of season one of this, but I think this might have skyrocketed to the top of my to watch list simply because, um, those are some of my favorite episodes, um, of Star Trek. Like, like, I think it's called the drumhead episode of, of next generation. Um, where Picard is just like full display of like being that moral compass and doing what's right, even in the face of standing up to Starfleet command. Um, I think of the, the, the episode that you mentioned with, with not only data being on trial, but also the one where Bashir is on trial in DS nine, because he's genetically modified as well. And just that biting social commentary is just, It has my butt in the chair, metaphorically speaking, because, you know, I'm usually laying in the bed watching stuff nowadays, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm here for it. And, and, and and I can't say enough, even in the three episodes I've seen of season one, this cast, my God.
0: It's definitely sort of harkens back to classic Star Trek casts where just everything gels and and the way they bounce off of each other is just pitch perfect. (laughs) Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, this was a, it for another episode of the Nerd By Word podcast. If you like what you just heard, find us on any app where you can find podcasts and drop us a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can also find us on our very own website, nerdbyword.com.
1: And be sure to hit us up on social media at Twitter and Instagram at Nerd By Word, individually, that nerd Chris and that nerd Dave. Uh, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy.
0: The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.